Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Adam Kirsch, author of the new book, The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us. Adam, welcome to Bookstuck. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. And congratulations on the book. Uh, So why a revolt against humanity? Well, this is a book uh, in a series called Columbia Global Reports, which are short books about current events. And a lot of them are reported books uh, in which journalists go to various places, report global stories. And in, in my book, what I'm doing is really reporting on ideas and thinkers who are, I think, going to have a, a big effect on the way the world thinks about some central issues. And as the title suggests, the most central issue is humanity going to last? Are we going to survive? Will we, will we be here in 100 years? And should we want for humanity to last and survive? Uh, the people that I look at in the book are, are pretty wide ranging. They range from Silicon Valley tech billionaires to uh, philosophy professors to radical environmental activists, but they converge around an idea that humanity and human sort of supremacy or domination of the planet is not necessarily a good thing and won't last forever. And we may be entering an age in which it comes to an end and that we should welcome that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well, because you start uh, the entire book with Foucault pointing out that man is an invention of recent date and one perhaps nearing its end, very much with the implication that man, as we actually think of it, uh, in many ways is an 18th century invention. So it's an important distinction, actually, that you're drawing through Foucault there. That's right. I mean, the idea that that we change the way we think about humanity or what it means to be human is someone that we're familiar with from Foucault and from postmodernism, the idea that there's no such thing as an essence of what it means to be human, but it's a construct that changes over time. Um, the people that I'm looking at in the book and the ideas go further than that. They say that actually the existence of the biological species Homo sapiens is something that will be coming to an end. Um, and what are the implications of that? In other words, they're not saying, let's rethink what it means to be human. At least they're not ostensibly saying that. They're saying, we're about what it will happen in a future in which human beings, homo sapiens, no longer exist. And will that be a meaningful, valuable future? Is it something that we should dread or might it actually be better in some ways than the present? Yeah, it's one of the, the somewhat alarming uh, aspects of the book that you know many of the writers that you're talking about saying that we should welcome this turn, that, uh, that in fact it represents a, a, a turn against human supremacy, which may actually be a good thing. Um, Right. Well, in the book, I talk about two schools of thought which have uh, a lot of differences and and wouldn't think of each other as on the same side in most debates, but both are participating in this revolt against humanity, as I call it. One are anti-humanists who are motivated primarily by ecological concerns. They see the damage that human beings have done to the planet and the idea of, of climate change and species extinction as a sign that there's something inherently violent and destructive about our species and that we are bringing ourselves to a point where we will no longer be able to survive um, either at all or at least in our current technological civilization. And they're saying, what if we were to look at at life on Earth, not from a human-centered perspective, but from a perspective of other forms of being and not just animals, but even inanimate objects like stones or rivers or climate systems? Um, is it possible to think of, of a world without us, but with those other things as a meaningful world? So some of these thinkers 
think that we are sort of in a in a Faustian way, we've made a bargain with technology uh, that has given us great power and that because of the limits of our nature, we're going to use that power in a way that will destroy us. And and that we and that we and that we're out of tune with nature in a way. Exactly. And and the idea that we're out of tune with nature isn't a new idea. It's sort of been around since the romantics uh, for a couple of hundred years. But one thing that's uh, distinctive about the anti-humanists is that they don't think that we can be brought back into harmony with nature. In other words, they're not meliorists. They're not saying uh, we can have a better future, a greener future, we can uh, live more lightly on the planet. They're saying history shows that there is no way for us to stop our destructive tendencies. If you go back 10,000 years and look at the fossil record, for example, you see that as soon as human beings arrived in the Americas, um, with a few thousand years, they had exterminated most of the large mammals. Uh, or if you look at you know areas where humans first introduced agriculture or the use of fire, that it was immediately followed by mass species extinction. So these aren't just problems of our current age. Uh, they're sort of inherent in the direction that the human race has been on from the very beginning. Um, and they are these anti-humanists are specifically very skeptical about things like a climate pledge uh, or or idea of having net zero emissions. They see these things as sort of corporate slogans that are used to distract people from the actual damage we're doing to the environment. Um, and in fact, the evidence suggests that these these targets that we set are never met, that as soon as we set them, we sort of blow right past them. Um, so there is a, a sort of deep strain of misanthropy in this way of thinking, as, as a term anti-humanist suggests, uh, a sense that human beings are not on the whole good, that we're bad, destructive. Uh, and and a sort of longing for a world without us, or at least without most of us, so that we can no longer do the kind of damage that we do. That's one school. Is it a kind of nihilism as well, do you think? Well, it's an interesting question. A, I, a lot of what I'm writing about in the book are philosophical and even spiritual issues rather than sort of concrete scientific predictions. I'm not getting into the question of will this happen or, you know, what does the future hold in terms of climate change? I'm talking about how are these things making us change the way we understand ourselves? And nihilism really only, the, the problem with all of, of this kind of anti-humanist thought is that it only makes sense in a human context. In other words, stones don't think anything about what human beings are like or should be like. Only humans can have that conversation. Only we can have desires and goals for ourselves or be disappointed in ourselves and pass judgment on ourselves. So there's something sort of oxymoronic or, or self-canceling about the idea that human beings would want to destroy humanity or that we would look forward to a world without humanity and think that it's better than our world. However, there is a certain logic to it. It's the logic of sacrifice. It's saying we take these ideals of compassion or justice so seriously that we want to sacrifice the very existence of the human race to these ideals, that the best way we can show how sincere we are in believing in these things is to make an offering of ourselves uh, and leave a world in which everything else is better off because we're gone. And as you uh, said a few minutes ago, there's another way of looking at this that, uh, you know, there, there are those who argue that this is not so much about sacrifice or uh, kind of welcoming extinction, but just will be a natural result of scientific progress of, of AI and uh, and genetics and so on, the kind of the the transhumanist approach to these things. Exactly. So the the flip side of the other side of this revolt that I talk about are transhumanists 
who are uh, people who think that technology is about to make possible the solution of a lot of problems that have always been thought of as inherent to human nature, that we're approaching an era when human beings will, for example, no longer have to die a natural death, uh, may no longer inhabit physical bodies, or may be able to change the form of our bodies at will. And these things, which might sound like science fiction ideas to the transhumanists who include uh, philosophers and scientists and actual tech entrepreneurs, these people think that, in fact, this is no longer just a matter of science fiction, that it's an imminent reality, that it's going to be part of our world you know, within the next 20 years. And they point to the very rapid technological progress that humanity has made over the last, say, 200 years. If you were to look at a, a graph of technological progress, it would be a very sort of slow or steady line for almost all of human history. And then around the time of the Industrial Revolution, it starts to go into like a hockey stick and goes way up. Um, that if this trend continues, we'll have possibilities that would once have been thought of as as magical. And what this, the, the sort of net result will be is that Homo sapiens will no longer exist or will no longer be the most dominant life form on the planet. We'll invent our successors. Our successors will be either uh, much more powerful versions of us or artificial minds that live on software, live in computers that are superior to us in ways that we can't even really grasp or imagine. And that these future forms of mind will be able to do things and solve problems that we ourselves will never be able to do as homo sapiens. It's a kind of almost an updated Darwinism in a way. Exactly. It's saying that the next step in evolution is technology, that forms of mind continue to evolve and that the next form is going to be no longer carbon-based, but silicon-based. What this has in common with the anti-humanists, obviously those two groups think very differently about technology and their attitudes towards it. And, and sort of one group is very positive about it and one is very negative. But what they have in common is an idea that a future without Homo sapiens in it would be better than the current future, that there's nothing uh, necessary about our existence as a species in order to give the universe meaning and purpose. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting as well. I mean, you, you spoke a few minutes ago about how, uh, in some ways, many of these ideas have been around for a long time, that uh, the romantics and uh, going back to the Industrial Revolution and concerns about this kind of thing. On the other hand, do you think the fact that we're talking about the revolt against humanity, these kind of ideas, speaks to a certain generational an uh, anxiety that's specific to us, for example, on climate change? People like Greta Thunberg have spoken about the impact on mental health and well-being and so, and so on. It seems to be something very much that is gripping this generation now. Absolutely. I think that's definitely true. And it has to do with the changing ways that we're thinking about technology and its costs. Um, on the one hand, we have the ability to live much of our lives in a virtual environment. I mean, we're talking right now across computer screens, many people, including myself, experienced during the pandemic, the way that our physical, um, sort of our physical existence could contract to the space of a room and we could still lead most of our lives virtually uh, on screens, communicating with other people that way and doing our work or doing our shopping, uh, even, even socializing. So on the one hand, we are sort of less in the physical world than any previous generation because of these information technologies. Uh, on the other hand, the physical world now seems fragile to us and endangered in a way that it never did to previous generations. The idea that nature is sublime or that nature is a spiritual force depends on the idea that nature is is much greater than us. It's more powerful than us. It shows us 
how small we are in the universe. Um, but if nature is something that we are poisoning and destroying and threatening, then no, we're no longer uh, sort of within nature, but nature is within us. We are the most powerful force on earth and we have to take pity on nature rather than feeling awe in the face of nature. And that is the idea that is associated with the term Anthropocene, which I talk about in the book. The Anthropocene age being uh, originally a geological idea, but really now a, an idea in the humanities and social sciences, which says that humanity is the most important force shaping the future of the planet. And that changes a lot of things about the way we understand the world and ourselves. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, that that's part of the danger, isn't it? That we we end up focusing on the sheerly negative. I mean, as you say, the Anthropocene argument is about creating a better humanity rather than starting a revolt or a revolution against it. Well, the, it all depends on one's view of the potential of, of humanity as it currently exists. One of the thinkers I talked about in the book is an Australian philosopher named Toby Ord, and he has a book called The Precipice, in which he imagines human progress as climbing up the side of a mountain and says that we have now reached a precipice where we are sort of stuck and unable to go any further. And so there are two options. One is that we start to go back down the mountain, and that's the anti-humanist preference to say we need to uh, sort of give up our technological power and return to an earlier sort of state of civilization. The other is to say that we can keep continuing up the mountain if we are no longer human beings in the traditional sense, if we sort of pass the, the relay uh, forward to some other species that can do better than us. So one example is uh, human beings with our bodies will never be able to explore deep space. Deep space travel is impossible for us. But the physicist Michio Kaku writes about the idea that if we could capture the electrical patterns of a human brain and turn them into uh, electromagnetic radiation, that they could be beamed across the universe at the speed of light, and that this might be a way to uh, sort of change the form of mind while allowing mind to do things that our bodies could never do. So transhumanists are very um, optimistic in a sense about what the future holds. They have very utopian and, and sometimes outlandishly so ideas about the future of intelligence in the universe and, and even the idea of converting the entire universe and everything in it all matter into a thinking substance. Um, is sort of an ultimate goal, but they think that those goals will not be achieved by us as Homo sapiens. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. I mean, you were you were talking there about technology and how some writers, I think Kings North is another one that you quote, have argued that we need to withdraw from technology. On the other hand, there, there definitely is this other side that technology, uh, which maybe could destroy us. Any of us who grew up during the the Cold War remember those anxieties that. Uh, but that it could also be our savior too, um, and you know one one example would be the way in which um, technology like Tesla, for example, electric cars, has put a spear through the heart of the internal combustion engine in terms of its long term future. Is is that an example of mankind's ability to renew itself, to change its direction, to learn from its mistakes, if you like? Well. I think it's something that the more radical thinkers of anti-humanism think will not happen, that we will not be able to use our, our intelligence to get us out of the trap that our own intelligence created. But it really has to do with, uh, to get back to the, the, you mentioned the idea of nuclear war and, and the idea that we could exterminate ourselves, you know, in a much more sudden and violent way than by climate change. 
that's been a part of, of our consciousness since the 1940s or 50s. The difference is that everyone agrees that a nuclear war would be bad. There's no one who would say uh, it's good to have a nuclear war. And in fact, the idea that war is bad is central to all of our you know, religions and moral tradition. The environmental problem is that it says that things that we actually think of as good are the destructive things. In other words, having more children, building more houses, having a better standard of living, uh, using more energy. Those are all the things that our, our, our economy and our society are geared towards. Those are, the, so those are our goals in life. And if those things start to be, become seen as negative because they use up the supply of available resources, they destroy habitats and they change the climate, then it, it poses a real question of if we're pursuing the best things that we can imagine is destructive, maybe we ourselves are destructive. Maybe sort of essentially the things we want are bad for the rest of the planet. Now, the mainstream environmental answer to that is we can find ways to eat our cake and have it too. And that, I think, is the most optimistic answer and the one that certainly I and everyone, most everyone, hopes will be the case, that we'll be able to use less fossil fuels and find other sources of energy, uh, support our standard of living and extend it to poor parts of the world without causing great environmental damage. But the anti-humanists don't think that will happen. And in a certain sense, even if it could happen, they wouldn't want it because what it would mean is a further estrangement of humanity from nature. It would mean that we were living in a completely technological bubble um, with no access to sort of nature or the planet on its own terms. And one example of this, you mentioned Paul Kingsnorth. He's a, a British environmentalist thinker who's very interesting and has a group called Dark Mountain. And he has a, an essay in which he writes about standing on the coast uh, and looking out and seeing wind farms, uh, you know, the giant rotating windmills in the in the ocean, and thinking, you know, if we were going to have a the best environmentalist future would mean wind farms everywhere. And that would mean that you would never see an unobstructed view of the ocean. You would you would have no direct contact with the ocean. Every place you looked would be a sign of human technology. And to him, that would be a dystopia. That would not be a solution to our problems, but actually sort of the worst outcome we could imagine. And um, what about biology reshaping ourselves, things like cloning, for example? Well, the transhumanists have a couple of different ideas about how we're going to get past human limitations. One of them is through technologies that they call GNR, which stands for genetics, nanotechnology, and robotics. And the idea is that we will have the power, and in some ways, you know, we already have taken the first steps down this road, to alter our genome in ways that prevent us from aging, prevent us from developing certain diseases, and then we'll be able to use nanorobotic tools uh, to constantly circulate in our bodies and repair cellular damage so that you'll never you know, develop cancer, for example, because your cells won't biologically age. With CRISPR technology, we already have the ability to cut out genes out of the genome, although we don't actually know how to use it to you know, create indefinite lifespans yet. But it's no longer just a theoretical idea. I think we do have the first steps on the rungs of this ladder, and it's really just an engineering problem at this point for us to develop these abilities further. So the question is, how fast will that happen? You know, will it come true in the way that the most optimistic people hope? Um, the writer Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the best known popularizers of transhumanist ideas, wrote in a book almost 20 years ago that he intended to stay alive until technology was invented that would abolish death. And he wrote about 
this intensive regimen he has of vitamin supplements and and blood treatments uh, because he thinks that if he can just last it out, you know, in the next 10 years, 20 years, that we'll have these GNR technologies that will mean we'll never get sick and never get old. Um, of course, that was that book was almost 20 years ago and it has not happened yet. And one of the sort of issues in transhumanism is overpromising and underdelivering. So uh, this movement, which has really been a, a self-conscious movement with this name for about three decades, has been looking forward to a lot of these things ever since then, and they have not yet come to pass. So there's some skepticism. It's naturally skeptical. Will these things ever come to pass, or are these just sort of fantasies? Um, another area that transhumanists are especially hopeful about is artificial intelligence. And here I think we are closer to some kind of real artificial intelligence. In fact, this has been in the news a lot since the book was published in January, that the consensus among computer scientists seems to be that a truly independent mind uh, that lives on a computer is something that we will almost certainly create in this century. I think the there's a, a survey that said that 90% of computer scientists believe that that will be achieved by the year 2100. And we see with some of these chatbots that have been in the news that chatbots are not minds and they're not independently intelligent, but they give a, a sort of eerie impersonation of it. There are some computer scientists who think that this might even happen by accident. Um, Max Tegmark of MIT writes about a scenario where uh, programmers might create an independent intelligence and not even realize that they've done it. And then he tries to game out what ways that mind might try to gain control over the outside world to prevent itself from being turned off, for example. So if we have another kind of mind on Earth, traditionally, you know, human minds are the only minds that we know about or have dealt with. If we have another kind of mind, it might have completely different ways of thinking and different values and goals than we do uh, that could lead to real conflicts. And that's another one of the areas of artificial intelligence research thinks about a lot. Yeah, which which brings us to the so-called alignment problem that it, it, it's about making AI that is going to align with human values and ethics while, while we still can. Exactly. The, one of the thought experiments in this world is the paperclip problem. This is the idea that uh, an engineer might design a, an artificial intelligence and give it the task, maximize the production of paper clips. And in order to do that, the AI would take over the world and exterminate humanity so that it could extract all the resources possible to fill the planet with paper clips. And that's a, a sort of fantasy scenario. But the idea is to spotlight the way that an artificial intelligence might not have the same understanding of goals and values that we do. You know, if you don't teach it explicitly that the most important thing is the survival of humanity or that paperclips only matter as long as there are people to use them, um, it might have a very different sense of what its purpose is and, and say, if paperclips are the purpose, then I'll do everything possible to create paperclips. So how to bring our values in alignment with those of artificial minds is a big, both practical and philosophical problem. Then there's even a more interesting problem, which I talk about somewhat in the book, which is if we really did have an artificial intelligence uh, with its own mind living on a computer, would we have the right to tell it what to do? What would makes our minds inherently superior to a computer mind? Is there any real difference? Um, is the experience of consciousness something that only human beings can have, or could it exist just as well uh, on a, a mind that exists on silicon chips? And if so, wouldn't it be like slavery to keep it locked up in a computer? Or would it be like genocide to turn it off and on over and over again, as we would ordinarily do to test a program? These are some of the sort of extreme and fans, sort of more fanciful 
but fascinating areas that a lot of these transhumanist thinkers are getting into. And is there a danger philosophically, do you think, that we just end up kind of spiraling downwards into a kind of a maze of, of questions that are that just become so difficult to answer? And I mean, obviously, philosophical questions are supposed to be difficult, but I can't help thinking that, you know, writers, conservative writers like Patrick Deneen and their their critique of the Enlightenment has always been that the Enlightenment will eventually end up eating itself. And uh, this, this almost seems to be a good example of, of precisely that. It is a very good question. And the Enlightenment is uh, central to a lot of these intellectual debates. Not all transhumanists are interested in sort of philosophy or intellectual history, but some are. And they talk about in what way they see their movement as a continuation of the Enlightenment and even earlier, uh, Renaissance humanism. Uh, the idea that what makes humanity unique isn't the fact that we have a certain form or even a certain brain. It's our ability to transcend limits. It's our ability to sort of shape ourselves and shape our future. And if that means we're shaping ourselves out of our human bodies or shaping a future in which we don't exist, that maybe that is in fact the consummation of our, of our mission on earth. That is sort of our destiny. It's to go beyond ourselves. That's what human beings have always wanted to do. It's what we always do is, is transcend. And this might be just another form of transcendence or the, or the last stage of transcendence. That argument says that the transhumanism is the natural destination of humanism, of secularism, of enlightened reason. And for people who look at that prospect with horror, they might agree and say that shows that the enlightenment itself has been bad from the beginning, that we can't trust human reason, that we need limits. Um, we need to sort of create prohibitions for ourselves and say some things are, are violations of human nature. They're not they're violations of the sacred and, and can't be done under any circumstances like cloning uh, or like genetic engineering of, of an embryo. And there are certainly people who make those arguments. The, the question is, for me, and, and this was one of the most interesting things for me in writing the book and, and thinking about these issues, is thinking of myself as basically uh, an enlightened rationalist thinker. Um, is there really a rational argument for saying no artificial minds or no genetic engineering, no extension of the lifespan, no traveling beyond planet Earth? Or, or are all those arguments fundamentally resting on a sort of arbitrary prohibition of the kind that rational thought is supposed to resist? In the end, I think there's a, a I found myself convinced by the argument that transcendence is what the human mind is for. It, it's the essence of humanity. And so it would be a betrayal of our essence to say, we cannot pursue these paths into the future. We must stay the way that we are now. And in fact, it might not even be compatible with human nature to say that. It might be impossible to stop the course of progress in that way. Yeah, because as that uh, character that you quote from Ian McEwan's uh, novel Machines Like Us says in a kind of cheerful fashion, there's nothing so amazing we can't get used to it. Right, exactly, exactly. And um, whatever we think that there's you know, a limit of we, we shouldn't do this, we can't do that, um, it would be a, a mistake to, we usually end up doing it and then figuring out a way to live with the consequences. I mean, a, on a much smaller scale, the problem of social media is a good example of no one said in advance, if we invent these social media networks, it will result in all these uh, social and political problems. Um, we just invented them and then are now we're trying to sort of figure out how to deal with the aftermath. And it might very well be the same thing with a lot of these transhumanist ideas that simply someone will invent them and they'll spread, and then we'll have to figure out what they mean afterwards. 
So the book is The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us. It's written by my guest, Adam Kirsch, and published by Columbia Global Reports. Uh, but for now, Adam, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.